Father, we thank you for the beauty of this day. And it's by the fact that we live in a world that seems to be torn, not only by natural phenomena, but by war and crises of many kinds. We know, Lord, that we can be at peace in our own hearts because of our trust in you. We're grateful, Lord, that Jesus told us before he left that, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Father, we know that you're here with us this morning, that Christ is here to minister to each of our hearts, that the Holy Spirit, who dwells within each believer, is here to draw us into that fellowship and into that understanding of the word that we need this morning. Father, we ask your special blessing on those who are not with us this morning. Many are away traveling. Uh, many of the ladies are at the retreat. We pray your, your special blessing upon uh, them today and your ministry to each and every heart. Now, Father, I pray that our thoughts will be focused on you as we study this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. I trust you appreciate the new decor beats chocolate, doesn't it? <laughs> Genesis chapter 12. Let's begin reading the first three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in all the families, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Last week we, begin, we began to look at this particular passage and we looked at the first few points on our outline. Several things to, of interest, I think, that we need to note are listed for you there. First of all, that the call that God brought upon Abraham from the human point of view did not seem reasonable. I mean, God didn't say, all right, now this is the plan, and these are all the things that I intend to do, and this is your role, and uh, this is all how it's all going to come together. He simply said, go. Go to Canaan. Now, certainly Abraham knew about Canaan. I mean, he was an educated man and travel back and forth through the Fertile Crescent was going on all the time. And so he knew about Canaan. He also knew that it was not a, a consolidated area, that it wasn't an area under unified rule. A sort of, um, you know, a little bit of a wild area in some ways. And so certainly that wasn't his uh, greatest desire personally to move from Ur in the first place and then from Haran in the second place, more settled areas, more populous areas, uh, areas of prosperity in comparison to go to sort of a backwater area, the, the place that you went through as you went from Egypt to the northern uh, Fertile Crescent. And yet God called him to go and uh, he went. Secondly, we noted that uh, God did call him to a definite place. God didn't just send him off into Nirvana someplace, so to speak. God didn't just say, look, head out to sea and once you get thousand miles out to sea, I'll begin to show you where to go. No, he said, go to Canaan. This is where I want you to go. 
And as I said, he already knew something about Canaan, not necessarily favorable, of course. And from that we extracted the idea that we need to be sure that it's God's voice we're hearing before we make a move. It's easy to make a move listening to the wrong voice. And for Abraham, he needed to be sure it was of God. Thirdly, and this is the point where we broke off last week, God made the assurance, gave assurance to Abraham that his call was going to bring blessing. And he literally spelled out those blessings as we read in the passage. First of all, he would father a great nation. Now, that was an interesting thought for Abraham because we read already earlier in the 11th chapter, the scripture told us that Abram's wife was childless. She was barren. And they had been married for many years with no children. And thus for God to say to Abram that he would father a great nation, uh, it was certainly shocking to some extent to him. He couldn't figure out how that would happen except by a miracle. And he was going to establish a nation that would literally number in the millions. Now, God didn't tell him that at this moment. But if we turn a couple of chapters over in the 15th chapter, when God is again speaking to Abram, he, he tells him, he, he's talking to him in, about this very issue, and he takes him outside and, and shows him the heavens above. And he says, he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, obviously, God is not making a literal statement here that there will be as many descendants of Abraham as there were stars in the heaven above. It's a figure of speech. Just as they seem innumerable, so your descendants will seem innumerable. We know that to the naked eye, uh, there are really aren't that many stars out there. And uh, some have said that with a, you know, if you've got good eyesight and if you could lay out, lie out under the sky, under the different quadrants of the earth, you could probably catalog 6,000 stars. But you know that with a telescope, they become millions and then they become hundreds of millions and then they become billions. And obviously, God was not saying either extreme. There would be far more than 6,000 and far less than multiplied billions of uh, descendants to Abraham. But all these people would come to this man. And so, obviously, the stigma of barrenness would one day be removed. And this was one of the great tests of faith for both Abraham and his wife, Sari, because it would go, many, many years would go by after this promise with no child. And uh, they would even make an effort to uh, help God along, which would prove to be a problem as years would pass. Secondly, the scripture tells us here that God promised to bless Abraham personally. I'm going to bless you as an individual, not only by giving you numerous descendants, but I am going to be with you, and I'm going to protect you. Wherever you go, I'm going to protect you, and I am going to supply your needs, not only supply them, but supply them abundantly. This is the inference. And this, of course, we know from hindsight, is what happened. This man became a man of great wealth and also a man of great longevity for those days. I mean, lived to be 175. Didn't even have a son until he was 100. Hmm. 
doesn't really fit with our framework today, of course. But uh, let me read this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. This particular passage, I think, from the New Testament, not only uh, is supportive of what God did for Abraham, but helps us to understand why God supplies our needs. He does so not only because he loves us and he has mercy upon us, but he does so because he wants us to be a blessing to others. Now, God didn't give Abraham all that wealth simply so that Abraham could have all that wealth. It was so, of course, that he could be a blessing and he could father a great nation and that he would develop a, a reputation and become a man who was noted to be the man of God. And in this New Testament passage where it says that God is going to provide abundantly, you'll notice that what the reason is for that abundant provision, for every good deed. In other words, God supplies our need not so that we can live higher on the hog or enjoy life in the physical sense more. It's so that we might minister, that we might reach out, that we might be God's hands and feet, as it were, in touching other lives. God does not give us abundance to waste upon our own lust and our own greed and our own flesh. He gives it so that we might, as we've heard many times, give it away. Of course, most of us have read the story of R.G. Letourneau as a, as a man who was an example of that, who ultimately, rather than tithing 10% and keeping 90, tithed 90 and kept 10. And as a result, was able to particularly be a blessing to the development of world missions. <coughs> And so it is. God blesses Abraham to prove to Abraham and to those around him that he is a great God and a God who is able, greater than all the supposed gods of the Canaanites and the Egyptians and, and anybody else. And as we translate that into our day, God provides for us that we might minister to one another and to those who are in need. And of course, the provision is not just physical provision. God provides us with the spiritual strength and insight and understanding and the ability to have the maturity we need to reach out. And that, of course, is within that provision. Thirdly, we're told that God promised to make Abram's name great. Now, he was leaving his country. He was leaving his relatives. He was leaving anybody and everybody he knew. And he was going to a land where his name was Zip. Who'd ever heard of Abram? Who'd ever heard of Terah? Who'd ever heard of the whole family? Nobody. They probably were people of some significance in Ur, and they were probably even people of greater significance in, in Haran. And, and we garner that as we look a little bit further on at uh, what happened when the move took place. And, and, and so, you know, it, it's, it's like going, like the new kid in the school, right? Your parents make a move, and, and it's two weeks into the school year already, and you're, you're coming late to school, and it's a new town, and, and you've left all your friends, and you walk onto the campus, and, and you're, you're nobody. And certainly that's the way Abraham uh, would have felt. He was childless on top of it all, which carried a stigma wherever you went. It's important for us, I think, to remember that the pagan cultures 
that existed in the world in which Abraham lived almost all focused on fertility cults. Whether you're talking about the uh, people of Sumer or those that followed them in Babylon or those of Assyria or those of Syria or the various tribal peoples in Canaan, the Phoenicians, the Philistines, the Egyptians, all of their pagan religion had at its, co at, at its core fertility cults. And um, sexual perversion was often part of the worship in all of these areas. And so to be childless was to consider, was, was to be cursed of the gods in almost all of these societies. And so for this man who was a stranger to go without child in a new land, it, it seemed like God was promising something that in the natural just, just wouldn't happen. God gave him, though, respect in his own day. And on top of that, God gave him a name that probably is better known in most nations of this world today than almost any other name. Because whether that country has a Christian background, a Jewish background, or an Islamic background, Abraham's name is great. And uh, many, many, many people think highly of this particular individual. Now, as we look in the, towards the end of the second verse of Genesis 12, God says in the last line, so you shall be a blessing. It's a command. It's in the imperative form in the Hebrew here. I'm commanding you to be a blessing, in other words, is what God is saying to Abraham. You must be a blessing. And if you are, really, no if about it, you will just simply do that, and as the result of that, three promises will be fulfilled. And they're listed then in the next verse. God will bless those who bless Abram. This was the first fulfillment of the promise of Abram's blessing. Those who in turn bless him, God will bless. To bless Abram, was to bless Abram's God. And wherever Abram went, and he was well received, those people in turn were blessed. Secondly, the opposite side of the coin was that those who cursed Abram would in turn be cursed by God. Now it's interesting to note that two different words are used here for the two renditions of curse in that verse. Look at uh, verse 3, the middle line. The one who curses you, I will curse. Curses and curse. They're, those are two separate words in the Hebrew. Those who curse Abram would do so by reviling him, by vilifying him, by, by pronouncing some kind of a formula curse on him. Some pagan line of sorts. Well, there, there's an example which I've listed for you there in uh, 1 Samuel of this kind of curse. And this is the type of curse being referred to. In uh, 1 Samuel 17.43, this, of course, is the famous story of, of David versus Goliath. And the Philistine, this is Goliath, said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. In other words, he said the line 
that was common to them. And of course, we all hear those curses today as we rub shoulders with our pagan society. And people have certain little pet phrases they use, and, and, and it's a curse, uh, often invoking our God uh, in, in that curse. But in this case, he was invoking his Philistine gods uh, in cursing David. Now, the curse th that this is referring to is an empty curse. There's no power in it because those gods are not real. And, and we, by simply wishing it, cannot invoke the, the curse of God Almighty on somebody. But it does honestly represent the heart condition of the individual doing the cursing. And so what God says here is that the person who thus curses you, I will make that formula curse, that, that empty, baseless curse, a reality for them. In other words, I will turn it around and it will become a true curse upon them. And here the word used in, in the Hebrew is arar, and that means that it's a God-imposed curse, which really happens. So it will be just shot right back at them, but it will become real, whereas it was empty, as it was focused on Abram. So just as to bless Abram was to bless Abram's God, so to curse Abram was to curse Abram's God. And so really it is for you and for me. The person who curses you, especially as a result of, of a good work you did or an attempt you made to, to witness to them, is cursing the God that lives within you. It's not an attack on you personally, really. It's an attack on the Lord that's in your life. Because the Lord goes with us everywhere. If we're true believers, he walks with us. He, he indwells us. And, of course, we're, we're, we're aware of that. And that's the real focus of the curse. Now, think about it historically. What has happened to those peoples that have cursed Abram in the sense of cursing Abram's descendants? What happened to the great Assyrian nation? Now, God used Assyria to punish Israel, but God held Assyria responsible for their attitude and who they gave credit to that they were able to, to establish their great empire. And what did God do? God destroyed them. I mean, God, first of all, earlier on, before he used Assyria against Israel, sent a witness to Assyria and gave them an opportunity to repent in the form of Jonah. And they did repent, but that repentance was not a long-lasting repentance, and 150 years after Jonah, the city of Nineveh was flattened, and its population was destroyed. Now, the people who destroyed Assyria weren't godly people themselves either, but that's not the point here. And you go down through the pages of history. For example, the Persians who uh, took over the Babylonian Empire into which the Jews had been taken into exile, were very tolerant. And, and they allowed the Jews to go back to the Holy Land to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. In fact, God had said to Cyrus, not really literally said to him, but said of Cyrus through a, the prophet Isaiah, who lived hundreds of years before Cyrus, you're my servant and you're going to do my will even though you don't know me. And, and you're going to restore Jerusalem and you're going to restore the temple. And so it would be under Darius and Xerxes and Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire lasted a long time. See, because the Persian Empire was friendly towards the Jews. 
you know, partly because of God's intervention, but they were religiously tolerant to begin with. And as a result, the, the Persian Empire lasted for 200 years, a whole lot longer than Babylon or Media or, or uh, uh, Assyria or any of these empires, and yet it's the number of uh, people in the Persian Empire who were Persians was much tinier minority relative to the whole empire than was true of Assyria or Babylon or any of those. Well, the Persians had the biggest empire the world had ever known up to that time, stretching all the way from modern-day India to Greece. But we look at our modern situation and uh, what happened to Hitler's Germany? Persecuted the people of God and Germany was destroyed. Now, yes, it's, it's risen again, but that nation which carried out that activity was destroyed. What happened to the Russia that had the great pogroms against the Jews in, at the turn of the century and before? It, it came under the domination of the Soviet state and the nation was subjected to greater slavery than ever before in its history. So as you go through the pages of history, you can see how this, this promise that God made was carried out and I believe will yet be carried out. Then thirdly, God would bless all peoples through Abram. All peoples through Abram. How in the world would he do that? I mean, after all, Abram is only one man. He's only got one wife. And he'll have one son. How in the world is he going to bless the whole world from such a small start? Well, of course, we know that the truth from that, especially from our study of the New Testament, is seen in the fact that God, from the seed of Abraham, would raise up the Messiah. And that Messiah would be the blessing of Abraham to the world. Let me read from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Even so, Abram, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Then verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. This is the New Testament fulfillment and statement of the Abrahamic covenant. God's covenant with Abraham that he would bless all the peoples of the world through Abraham in the New Testament is specifically stated to be fulfilled here in this passage in Galatians. You and I are literally the offspring of Abraham spiritually. We may not be genetically descended from Abraham, but in what counts in God's eyes, we are the descendants of Abraham. And so we're blessed with Abraham the believer, who is a believer because, as this passage said, in that first verse up there, verse three, 6, he believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. And it is our faith that God has put into our hearts in the atoning work of Jesus Christ that causes us 
to be made righteous because of the blood of Christ. Now, Abraham, of course, preceded Christ, but God is not tied to time as we are. And so the sacrifice of Christ applied to those who lived before as it would those who live after in the eyes of God Almighty. Abraham was under the blood of Christ in the sense that he lived by faith and righteousness was imputed to him as an act before Christ's death and to us as an act after Christ's death. But to God, the Scripture tells us, when was Christ slain? Before the foundation of the world, we're told. So the actual commitment to the sacrifice was made before God even created the world. And we were called and chosen even before God created the world. Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sari, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, continuing towards the Negev. How long was Abraham, Abram, how long was he in Haran? Well, we can't really determine that. We don't know how long he was in Haran. We know that the progress was made from Ur to Haran, and for a time he was in Haran. And then he moved on. It seems that he probably was there for many years. Finally, though, he left impelled by the word of God. I like that thought, impelled by the word of God. He was driven by God's word to do God's will. Why does God give us his word anyway? That it might propel us, impel us, drive us to do his will. To show us what his will is and then to give us the, the, the reason to pursue it, to do it. Now, Abraham didn't have a written word to go by, but he had God's word that was spoken to him audibly, and therefore that was renewed in his mind. Now, Abram, as yet, had no children, but this move was no small endeavor. It wasn't like, well, let's strike the tent and move on. <laughs> Notice what it says in, in, in verse 5. He took Lot, and it says he took all their possessions which they had accumulated. <laughs> now, the implication is there, we're not talking about a small thing. We're not talking about a little rug here and a little pillow there and a, 
you know, maybe a vase or two. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about apparently massive possessions. And it says, and the persons they had acquired in Haran. They apparently had a huge household of goods and a large core of servants and employees. Now, Abram was a rancher, if, if you will. That is, he herded sheep and goats and cattle. And he may have also been a caravaneer. Many of you who have studied this believe that Abraham was a caravaneer, that he was uh, an organizer of caravans uh, that moved back and forth. And so he was an, you know, an entrepreneur, a man of substance already, before he ever left Haran. And so he probably had many, many, many in his employ already at this particular time. Now, how, how can we, can we get any kind of an idea about this? I mean, can we get any number at all? I think we can have a little bit of an insight here. Later on, a couple of chapters later, uh, we'll be getting to the story, and, and we're somewhat familiar with the story, I'm sure, where uh, kings from the east come over and they capture Sodom and they carry off Lot. So Abraham goes chasing after those that uh, had captured Lot. In chapter 14, verse 14, we read these words. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318. Now these are just the warriors. Not talking about the female servants, not talking about the children or the older servants who are males and females, but just the warrior servants, those who are capable of being warriors. And it says they were trained men. In other words, there had been some military practice here. He didn't just pick up all the little porters that were running around here and didn't know which end of the sword to, to handle. I mean, these were guys who knew what to do. 318 of them. So from that, we can extrapolate his household must have been at least 1,000 strong. <laughs> now, whether he had all of those when he left Heron or not, we, we, we don't know. But the implication is he had a pretty, high, pretty large household. So it wasn't a matter of just, you know, taking the tent down and sticking it on the back of the donkey and, and taking off, you know, sort of like the view we get of, of Joseph taking Mary from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, just one man leading a donkey with one woman. No, we're talking about a, a caravan that probably strung out over miles and tens of thousands of animals possibly being driven across this landscape. This was a major move. It wasn't something that... Abram could just, at the last second side, let's go do it. It had to be prepared for. It had to be thought to be important and reasonable. He had to convince Sari that this was an important thing to do and everybody else. I mean, certainly he had certain individuals who were under him were sort of like the, the uh, supervisors and all, and, and, and they had quite a bit of in, input. And even though they do ultimately what he commanded them to do, certainly he had to kind of convince them that this was a good thing to do. So they would do this all willingly. Now the question is, why does Lot go? What does Lot have to do with this whole thing here? I mean, Lot's his nephew. Why does Lot choose to leave Haran and, and the family that was there and all that was happening there and to go with Abram? Well, one answer might be that he worked for Abram. That's a possibility. Later on, we discover that they divide their herds and so forth. It's, it's very possible that Lot originally began as an employee uh, for his uncle. 
and therefore he went for, for that particular reason. But I like to believe that it's because he had come to believe in Abram's God and to believe in Abram's call that his uncle had influenced him to believe in this word. And therefore he decided, I don't want to live here amongst all these pagans and my pagan family. I want to go with this man who has become my, quote, spiritual father. Sort of like his discipler. And so he wanted to go with Abram for this reason. I like to believe that that is true. Now, we all realize later on from our understanding of Genesis that Lot will choose to go down and live by pagan Sodom. And there will be a, a measure of corruption to which he, he exposes himself and his family. And yet the scripture tells us that in spite of all that, that Lot's righteous soul was vexed by the people of Sodom. Now the scripture wouldn't say that if Lot wasn't a man who believed in God. Now he had compromised, he had walked the wrong way, he had made wrong choices, but that didn't negate his basic belief in God. Oh, he paid for it, he paid for it dearly. Lost his wife, lost his sons-in-law, and committed incest with his own daughters, and produced children who became the enemies of Israel. But nevertheless, Scripture says his righteous soul was vexed. When did he come to know the God of Abram? Well, I think probably before he left Haran. Now, Abram wasn't always a wonderful example to him. As we're going to see next week, when they go down into Egypt, Abram's a terrible example. And I'm sure Lot was kind of thinking, you know, this guy's a real hypocrite. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, Lot chose to go. Abram, we're told in the passage, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, of course, we translate that into our culture today. We think, whoa, I mean, who's going to embark on an adventure like this at 75? But we have to remember, in the case of Abraham, 75, he wasn't even half his age yet. He would live to be 175. He had another 100 years to go. And uh, so he was certainly relatively youthful compared to someone of that age today. And so, at 75, he organizes this large caravan, and they set out. Can you imagine the impact on, on Heron? Now, Heron was probably a fairly good-sized entrepot, but still, with such a large contingent leaving and all these animals leaving, it, it must have been uh, quite a day in Heron. And probably many came out to either say, well, God bless you, or to say, you are an idiot. You know, what's in Canaan? Who is this God anyway that you're talking about? Where's this image? I mean, he's not like the statues we have here. I mean, what is he like? How come you're listening to his voice? But we understand that although he knew he was going to Canaan, he didn't know where in Canaan he was going to settle. And we, as we read the passage, we, that was quite clear as he kind of bounced from one place to the other, kept moving south. Sort of like, well, is this yet the place, God? He kept on moving uh, through the land. But the point is, he trusted God. He trusted God to show him the way as he went, to know what he needed to know when he needed to know it, and not necessarily before. 
we need to constantly remind ourselves that God doesn't just flat out open the whole plan before us at the beginning. He doesn't say, oh, now you're a Christian. Well, this is what your life's going to be like in intimate detail for the next 50 years. God doesn't do that. For the most of all, in the first place, it would probably scare us half to death if we actually saw all that was going to happen. Or we would become very, very proud, you know, say God's going to use you to become a great Christian leader of some sort, you could become arrogant and negate the possibility of ever becoming that great man or, or woman of God. Uh, it's it's uh, important for us to know that, to remind ourselves that God shows us what we need to know when we need to know it, and generally not before. You know, people who come up and say, I had this vision and God showed me what's going to happen over the next 10 years. I, I become very skeptical about that. You know, it's possible, but it, you don't find much in Scripture to validate that. And, and our own walk with God seems to indicate that, uh, sort of like a flashlight. You ever walked on a really, really dark night with a flashlight? You feel like the blackness is just overwhelming you. You've got this little ray of light down on the ground. And all you can see is the next couple of steps. And beyond that, it's inky black. Well, that's sort of the way it is. You know, God shows us the next step, and he wants us to take it in faith, knowing that we're going in the right direction. If we take this step in faith, then the next step in faith, we can't get off the track. But when we don't take them in faith, then, of course, we can end up in disaster. It's good for both our humility and our faith that God doesn't show us much of the future for our personal lives. Keeps us trusting in Him, believing in Him, exalting Him, <laughs> trusting Him, clinging to Him. Because sometimes the future looks pretty frightening to us. As we read one time earlier in 2 Samuel, these words, For you are my lamp, O Lord, you illumine my darkness. Now, if you have that map before you, Abram was traveling the major trade route of that particular day. Abram was... Let me get mine out of here. Abram was traveling from Haran, which is up at the top of the Fertile Crescent up here, down certainly... If he followed the major route of that day, which is most likely what he did, I mean, it's not likely to take off on some back track. So he follows the main route. It would take him down to Aleppo, and then from Aleppo down to Damascus, and then from Damascus he would go across the top of the Sea of Galilee and then straight down into the heartland of Canaan. Now, he would be traveling the major route until he got to probably Hatzor which is the city located uh, just a little bit to the west of the top of the Sea of Galilee. From that point, he deviated from the main route to a secondary route, and that's why he ended up at Shechem. Had he stayed on the main route, he'd been over at the coast. Now, the route that traveled along from Egypt up to Haran along the coast there is called the Via Maris, which simply means the way of the sea. The Via Maris. And that was the primary route of trade between Egypt and Mesopotamia on this, this portion here. Uh, there were two branches that broke off from that. One was a fairly strong trunk, 
and that was the King's Highway, which ran down the east side of the Jordan Valley, only not in the valley, up on top of the plateau. It was called the King's Highway, and it went all the way down to the south of the Dead Sea, and then looped around and connected over with the Via Maris over in the Sinai. In between those two main ones was a secondary route called the Ridge Route. And the Ridge Route breaks off approximate Hatzor and runs down the crest of the hill country in Israel. It runs down through Galilee and Samaria and Judea, all the way down through Hebron, and then comes down to Beersheba, and then ultimately catches, cuts over to connect into the Via Maris. So you've got three routes coming down. And those three more or less come together up towards Damascus. Two of them join about Hatzor, then the, the King's Highway comes up towards Damascus and joins. And so he's following this route. Now, why is he following that route? Well, not only so he won't get lost, but that's the route of the, uh, of the grasses for his herds. Sufficient rainfall falls in that area for, for herds to be provided for. If he were to try to go from here straight south and then cut over, he'd end up out here in the desert. The Syrian desert is not a place for herding animals. You have to stay up to the north where the rainfall is and where rivers, particularly in Mesopotamia, are available. And so that would be the route he would follow. Now the journey that he took would be a journey of approximately 500 miles from Haran down to Canaan, Shechem, Bethel, wherever you want to use as the terminal point. That was a journey of approximately 500 miles. Now to us today, a 500-mile journey is, you know, we wouldn't, don't necessarily look forward to driving 500 miles in one day, but it's, it's a long ways from impossible. Most of us have probably driven much longer in a single day, much further in a single day. But, uh, you know, uh, what, what, what are we talking about? A 10-hour trip, maybe? <laughs> well, try it with 10,000 animals, you know, sheep goats, cattle, driving them along the way, you know, and uh, all this household good, all these household goods, which had to be drawn in wagons, carried on animals. Uh, majority of the people would be walking because they were out there trying to keep the animals curtailed. So what kind of a trek are we talking about? Well, I, I've done quite a bit of reading on uh, the old cattle trails of, of the West in America. And generally speaking, as long as the animals were being allowed to sort of graze as they went, you know, you're not herding them in a big hurry like sometimes they did. But if you're allowing them to graze as they go, you're talking about a maximum of one mile an hour. You know, that's a max. If you actually get them to go one mile an hour, you're doing pretty well. So you're talking about a 10-mile day. Maybe. So, you know, a good day would be 10 miles. So we're talking about at least 50 days, seven weeks minimum. And probably more than that because you're going to camp periodically and probably stay in a, in a nice place for a little while to get the animals, you know, better grass, more water, rest everybody up before you make... So, you know, we're probably talking eight, ten weeks. Uh, it took him at least to make this particular journey. It's very interesting to think of it that way because whenever you actually go over to the Holy Land, 
One of the things that impresses you is how close everything seems to be. I mean, you drive out of Jerusalem and before you know it, you're in Bethlehem. Or you drive out to the north and bango, you, you're, you, know, you have to look quick, you're passing Gibeah and you hang a right, you're at, I mean, the left, you're at, you're at Gibeon, and a little bit further, you're at Bethel. I mean, everything is so close. Ten minutes to get there by car, you know. But when you're walking, it's a different matter. Just think of what it was like. This is kind of off the subject a little bit, but think what it was like for the mountain men in the American West, some of whom traveled from the Missouri-Mississippi River all the way over here to the California mountains. <laughs> that was a long journey. <laughs> you put a lot of Israels in there <laughs> in that particular thing. So uh, you just have to kind of scale everything down to a completely different speed than we're used to living and not be in such a big hurry <laughs> to get from one point to the other. And so from camp to camp, past Aleppo, past Damascus, probably didn't go right into Damascus. Well, maybe some people did to, of, of his uh, household to pick up some goods, you know, supplies, but probably didn't move the whole retinue through Damascus. Stayed out to skirt uh, the city probably, keep the animals out in the countryside, and, and move on down. I, I really believe that although they may have passed Hatzor, that they didn't stop at Hatzor. Hatzor was a fortress city of Canaanites that uh, throughout the history, as you read in the Old Testament, was not friendly <laughs> to uh, anybody having to do with uh, the Hebrews, but uh, not a very friendly city with much of anybody. And so it probably skirted that city. And then we're told that he came to Shechem. Now Shechem is in central Canaan. Shechem is in the hill country of Ephraim. Shechem is a town that is located right near the saddle between Gerizim and Ebal, two mountains of considerable fame in later Hebrew history, two mountains of about 3,000 or so feet in elevation upon which worship has transpired historically and upon which even today the, the Samaritans, the descendants of the ancient Samaritans still worship on the top of Mount Gerizim. And the, ru the ruin of their temple can be seen up there on the top, or at least the site that's supposed to be the ruin of their temple can be seen on the top of Mount Gerizim. And so uh, this, this was a, a fairly significant little town, not a big town. How do we know it was a little town? Well, remember later on when Jacob comes through this area? Oh, this is getting a little bit ahead by a year or so in Genesis, but <laughs> I hope not. Uh, Jacob comes down through this area here, and what happens to his daughter? His daughter Dinah gets raped by the son of the king of Hatzor, uh, I mean of Shechem, and so two of the sons come up with a, with a great plan, and I'm not going to ruin the story by telling it all now, but the upshot of the whole matter is that these two boys slay all the males of the city of Shechem. So we know it's not a very big town. So he comes to Shechem, and he camps in the neighborhood of Shechem, just outside the town, at a place called the Oak of Morah. Morah means teacher, so it's the Oak of the Teacher. Now, we don't know why it was called that. Very probably, it was a place where a kind of a school was held, or some famous uh, teacher of some sort, a guru maybe, 
uh, held camp underneath this uh, oak tree. But it was obviously a well-known landmark of that particular day, or it wouldn't even be referred to in this passage, the Oak of Mora, the Terebinth of Mora, uh, more literally. Scripture says, and the Canaanite was in the land. Well, <laughs> it's what you expect, right? If you go to Canaan, people live there probably are the Canaanites. And, uh, but, but why is that little statement made? I think that little statement is made so that the reader will understand that Abram is walking into an area which is sort of hostile. Not sort of, was hostile. Hostile physically, hostile spiritually. He was walking into a spiritually dark land. The Canaanite. What we know about the Canaanites is pretty awful. The Canaanite religions were, were just rotten and were totally perverted. And awful things happened, including human sacrifice to their gods. And not just human sacrifice, sacrifice of children, which makes it even more heart-wrenching as you think about it. There we're told the Lord appeared to Abram, verse 7. And the Lord appeared to Abram. Abram had journeyed by faith. Not by sight. He had journeyed by faith. God had said, go and go there, and I will show you the way. And he went. He didn't demand that God reveal it all to him before he went. He went by faith. And so God is rewarding that faith by appearing before Abram making a physical manifestation of himself. To what? Validate that faith. To confirm that faith. God does not appear in the Old Testament just for no reason at all. When you see the references to the appearances of God in the Old Testament, in virtually every instance, it is to confirm faith. It is to generate faith. In Moses' case, as he stood before the burning bush, it was to generate faith that he would, God would go with him and enable him to do what God commanded him to do. In this case, it's to confirm that faith that has already been expressed by the journey that he made. Now, exactly what Abram saw, we cannot know. It doesn't say. It just says the Lord appeared to him. It doesn't say he appeared to him in a burning bush or, you know, in a tree, or in a human form, or in, it doesn't say how he appeared to him in this particular passage. Now, God would later appear in many different forms. We're most familiar probably with the burning bush appearance. But God would appear to this man, Abram, later in human form. God often appeared in angelic form, and it says, the angel of the Lord. We remember, of course, the account of Joshua, right? He's given the responsibility of taking the people into the land, and he takes a walk out in the countryside, probably just to ponder and to pray, and this person appears before him in warrior outfit, and, and it tells us the angel of the Lord appears to him. God manifests himself in an, in an angelic form. These appearances are called theophanies, from the Greek, which means Theos, God, phanes, phanios, having to do with manifestation. So the appearance or manifestation of God 
theophanies. God always revealed himself in some intermediate form. God never appeared in his form as Father, whatever form that is, if it even is a form. God, we're told, has never been seen by human eyes. What does that mean? That means God, in his glory, as he really is, has never been perceived by human eyes on this planet. We have seen God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, God manifest, Emmanuel. We, many have seen God in angelic form, human form, burning bush form, but they have never seen God without the veil, so to speak, between the person and God, because the Scripture tells us our God is a consuming fire. And in this flesh we could not possibly stand before God in his unshielded glory. I always, to me it's always just amazing when I think about the passage in the Gospel of John where these palace priest guards are coming up with the priests and Judas and they come to Jesus and they're going to arrest Jesus. And Jesus just lets a teeny, teeny glimmer of glory shine through when he says, I am he, and it says the whole crew fell head over heels. I mean, he just, just a teeny ray. <laughs> Splat. Imagine if he widened that gap a little bit, they'd all been incinerated. Nobody has seen God in his unshielded glory. And you, you read the vision of Isaiah and the vision of Ezekiel, and what do you see? There, there's no form. It's just a brilliance. The corona, we're told. The iris, which is the corona. The, the rainbow of, around God's glory. And uh, even that's shielded from the eyes of the viewer in the vision. The message of God here is very short and to the point. God, you'll notice doesn't beat around the bush much. God spells it out quickly, succinctly, and clearly. This confirmation comes after Abraham has obeyed the voice of God and made the journey. What does God say? To your descendants I will give this land. Now that's a pretty short message. I'm sure Abram had a lot of other questions. But, but, but God, <laughs> what about this? What about that? What about the other thing? To your descendants, I will give this land. That's all he needed to know. Look around. This land. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that Abram wasn't, you know, super over-impressed. Um, it's kind of a rocky place. Although in those days, I, I would suspect it was more heavily forested than it is today. There's significant implication in the Old Testament that there were forests, for example, in the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, otherwise, uh, what's his name? Absalom wouldn't have been able to get hung up in a tree. But, uh, and those forests are basically gone today, although Israel has this, ma this monstrous program of trying to plant trees <laughs> to reforest the land. But it's, it's really a rocky place. And uh, not exactly a, a, a great fertile valley, although the plain of Israelin in the north is, is a very fertile area. And, of course, we know a little bit later on, Lot looks around and says, <laughs> I don't want this rocky place. Let me have the valley of the Jordan River. 
you know. And so, so he moves, he moved, would move down there. God confirmed his will to Abram moment by moment, not decade by decade. And as was the case of Abram, we must walk by faith, even as he did, but we have a light that he didn't have, and that's why God appeared to him and spoke to him, because he didn't have this book. But we have the whole account of what God wants to say from Genesis 1-1 through end of Revelation 22. God has said what he intends to say, and he wants us to know it and to believe it and to live by it. And as we do, we're walking by faith and really not by sight. What did God say? What did Jesus say to Thomas? Yeah, you stuck your hand in and now you believe, but blessed are those who have never seen and yet they believe. And this is the resounding message that echoes down the famous hall of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. And let me just end today by refreshing our minds from that 11th chapter of Hebrews relative to the role of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. This includes Abram. He's an outstanding example of that. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And then in verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The role of faith can never be overstated. And God gives a whole long list of men and women who believed God and it was accounted to them as righteousness and they became examples of faith to that great cloud of witnesses. And you and I are part of that cloud of witness in the fact that we're looking back upon them as they're recorded here. And they are an encouragement to us that we too might believe, as did Abram, and even though we see the failures of Abram and we see the failure of his wife when, you know, she laughed when, when the angel said she would have a child. But nevertheless, the scripture still implies she had faith. Now, there are times when our faith seems a little weak, aren't there? Sometimes when we really feel that we have made a, a big blunder. And yet deep down inside, that faith is there. I think even when we have committed a a serious sin for which we've been convicted by God deep down inside we didn't want it really didn't want to do that it was yielding to our flesh to the pressures of, of the enemy of the world lust whatever God is in our hearts and God wants that faith to grow so that we walk in him every day by faith from the minute we get up to the minute we go to bed and even through the night that we trust in him as as Abram did well next week we'll finish those verses and move to the next section